You're listening to New Voices in Philosophy, a production of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project. This podcast is sponsored by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and partner institutions. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Haley Brennan. In this episode, I speak with Nick Bomarito, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Simon Fraser University. We discuss the French philosopher Simone Weil, focusing especially on what she has to teach us about the moral value of attention and the true uses of education. Nick and I also talk about his work in Tibetan Buddhist thought and his experiences studying figures and traditions that have been excluded from mainstream histories of philosophy. Hi, Nick. Thanks for being here today. Hey, thanks for having me. So in this episode, we'll be talking about Simone Weil, but first, I'd love it if you could give me some background on you. So, you know, who are you? What (laughs) philosophical topics are you interested in? And then how does Vey fit into those interests? Um, so I'm a um, assistant professor at Simon Fraser University in um, Vancouver, Canada. Um, I'm in the philosophy department. Um, my work is in two areas. One is kind of um, ethics, particularly I think about certain kinds of mental states and and the moral value they have and how. Um, And the other thing I do is um, Buddhist philosophy through mostly Tibetan. So Tibetan is the language I have best. Um, So I work on basically Tibetan Buddhist philosophy, particularly ethics. So that's the kind of zone I'm in. Um, And my interest in Simone Weil came from thinking about the moral importance of mental states, basically. So that's how I came into it. Yeah. Thank you. So I was going to ask if you could give an example, actually, of a mental state that has um, ethical value. And I was wondering if maybe you would talk about attention. Yeah, sure. Um, So I have a I have a book called Inner Virtue, where I talk about different states and particularly how they relate to moral character. Um, So there I talk about pleasure. I talk about emotion and I talk about attention. Um, So. I think, for example, it matters to what kind of person you are, um, what kinds of things you notice. And my account for why that matters is that the psychological fact that we what we notice uh, is inflected by what we care about. So to the extent to which what you notice comes from your interests or what matters to you, um, it sort of is part of that. Uh, which isn't all attention, like sometimes if there's just like a loud noise, you know, maybe there's some like survival interest you have. But um, I think I don't think all attention has this feature, but attention can have this feature. So one Mm -hmm. of the things that I was sort of pushing against is an idea of ethics. So some people define ethics as ethics concerns what to do. Mm -hmm. And part of what I'm trying to do is broaden that to say, well, it's not just what we do. I mean, certainly you can do things that cultivate certain kinds of attention but that that attention itself can can be important um like it's a Mm -hmm. good thing if you notice involuntarily that someone is uh in need or something like that because you care about helping people in need um i see i see yeah so the distinction there is between a mental a voluntary sort of mental act such as attending with effort 
and then involuntary kinds of, of mental yeah, states. And I, yeah. And, you know, actually, I think one of the things that is interesting about Simone Bay is she talks about attention in a way that kind of blurs that. So mm-hmm. uh, actually, I have a paper with um, Gennard and Ganeri um, that's going to be in uh, a future Oxford Studies and Epistemology volume. Uh, but that talks about Simone Bay and um, uh, a Buddhist philosopher named Buddha Gosa. But particularly the the Vey stuff is about how she talks about a kind of receptivity that is not quite voluntary and not quite involuntary. Like you're you're kind of open to what the what's coming to you. Um, but it, it is in a certain way something you're doing. So it in certain ways um, blurs the line there. And I think there's other states that that kind of blur that. The one that I always think of because I come from a Buddhist philosophy background is um breathing is like this. Like sometimes breathing is an involuntary thing that happens, but you can breathe. You can decide to breathe in a certain way. Um, And I think so just if you talk about breathing, for example, that's a thing that kind of blurs the distinction. And I think Simone Bay talks about attention in a way that I think interestingly blurs that. Yeah, that reminds me of something that one of our previous guests, Christina Van Dyke, said about the contemplative philosophical tradition in the medieval Latin West, actually, which is, of course, a different context, but maybe a little bit related to Ve. One thing I do know about her is that people talk about her as a mystic. Mm-hmm. And so Christina yeah. and I were talking about, you know, where do the contemplative and the mystical traditions overlap and where do they diverge? And one overlap that we talked about was this idea of sort of cultivating receptivity to um, mystical experiences or to sort of experiences that bring you into contact with grace. You know, it's not something that you have control over as a person, as a human being, but what you can do is try to like take steps to kind of put yourself in a good state to have such experiences. And and am I hearing that there's almost something analogous here where it's like you can work to put yourself into a state to be receptive to noticing certain things, but you're not actively sort of uh there's not like a moment of volition where you're saying okay right now i'm gonna attend to this phenomenon yeah and and i think one thing that i think is a kind of parallel with certain strands in buddhist thought is some buddhists when they talk about important states that you can get into um will highlight that those states aiming at those states directly sort of undermines them. So this is like mm-hmm. also bread and butter. And like Sidgwick talks about the paradox of hedonism, where it's like, if you want pleasure, if you're constantly thinking about getting pleasure, that's like very unpleasant actually. So I think that in, in certain ways. Yeah. <laughs> or if, you know, like another great example is like relaxing, the harder you try to relax, the more tense you get. So you can, it's not to say you can't do things to relax, but you kind of have to do them and then have them fade out of view. And I think there's a strand in Vey that I find very um, powerful that where she's like pointing out that when you try to do this, you get in your own way and in just this sort of just this way. Yeah. I wonder if we could circle back a little bit just to talk about who Vey is. So um, I know a very little bit about her. Actually, she briefly lived in one of the buildings on my block um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess in the 1940s 
But yeah, I, I, I truthfully don't know all that much about her. And I imagine many of our listeners don't either. So could you just give us a little bit of background on, yeah, who, who Simone Weil is and, and what kind of philosophy she she does and what she engages with? Yeah, I guess so. It's like she's a French philosopher. She's, you know, born in 1909 and died in, I think, 1943. Um, so she's, you know, she's young during the First World War and then sort of dies during the Second World War. Um, she's a little bit of a outsider, like she's writing essays and stuff, but she's not, uh, you know, she's part of the intelligentsia, but she's not. And, you know, she has this reputation of like, she scored very high on these exams and she's this student of a, this famous uh, French professor. Uh, she's very politically active. She worked in a factory. Um, she, you know, went to the Spanish Civil War like many intellectuals did. Um, I guess just to say less like biographical details, people have been fascinated with her life. You know, people think of her as like uh, either valorize her as some kind of supernatural saint mm. <laughs> or they'll see her as um, a kind of misguided you know there mm -hmm. if you read biographies you have this sense of like she wants to for example go to the spanish civil war but like she's very clumsy and is like not equipped to do this and so it looks like her parents and other people are kind of looking out for her even though mm. given that she has this kind of idealized um, sense of life and they're kind of like going around sort of protecting her as she idealistically wanders around so there's that take on her um, some people are very interested in her politics she's writing a lot about politics she has um, she worked in a factory and sort of kept a journal um, which is you know there's a lot of details about the politics that you know I don't know that well but one of the things that I kind of like about it is like there's these intellectuals saying all this stuff about the workers or whatever and she she's sort of like hey do you guys ever like talk to workers or like see what's going on in a factory and some of them are like nah <laughs> so I do think that's like part of the you know the thing that people admire about her is she's like well I'm just gonna go to a factory and work and see what it's like and see yeah. you know hear what people are talking about, hear what they care about. Not that that's always like settles the matter. You know, they could be wrong about what's the workers yeah. could be wrong about what's good for them. But, you know, this important kind of listening aspect. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people are very interested in her politics. A lot of people are very interested in her religion. So she's like later in her life, she has this religious experience and she kind of becomes catholic although no never officially joins the catholic church because you know she has certain um um hang-ups about in in a certain way about group membership in general that's also true of kind of her politics she's not really a joiner <laughs> it seems like um so there's a lot she writes a lot about that um so there's like a lot of interest like in in political stuff and religious stuff in addition to like the kind of ethics stuff that i'm that i'm interested in how did you find out about Simone Weil? What made, first made you interested in her as a philosopher? So uh, I was um, writing on this attention stuff in graduate school about how attention is important. And I had talked to another graduate student in religious studies who was like, oh, you talk, you're talking about Simone Weil. And I was like, who's Simone Weil? And it, she was like, you're going to love, you know, it's kind of one of those, like sometimes people are like, oh, you have to read this. It's like an obligation. She was like, oh, you're totally going to love this. Like, 
you know, so then I was like, I got the book and I actually, the first thing I got was gravity and grace, which is a, a priest friend of hers had edited her notebooks into this. So it's very like aphoristic, which mm-hmm. not all of her writing is like that. She mm-hmm. writes like regular essays too. And I read it and I just was like, had no idea what to make out of it. I was just like, what is, what is happening? You know, I, again, I was trained as a analytic philosopher. So I just am not equipped to read those things. And I think actually one of the things that helped was like hanging around Asian studies and reading Tibetan texts, which is like, it was the only thing that got me to like, oh, I see sometimes there's different systems and different norms and you have to kind of like be open to like jumping into a new system or whatever. But I just was not there when I first read it. So I was like, this is interesting, but I just don't know what what to do about it. Um, and particularly I was, I, then I was writing with this notion of attention of like, if you look at the attention literature and like cognitive science, there's like, you know, they operationalize stuff. So they're like, oh, attention is just like making mm-hmm. information available to working memory or like some mm-hmm. definition like that. So then I was like, the stuff that Simone Weil was saying about attention was like, sort of built the value into it. And I was kind of like, oh, so she's just talking about this other thing. Um, so that when I was sort of bracketing uh, Iris Murdoch and Simone Bay because I felt like they just defined attention as a kind of ethical notion, which they mm-hmm. sometimes do. Um, so I did, I did, I didn't really think about it. I read, you know, people are very interested in her life. So I, I was reading, I read actually a bunch of biographies of her. Uh, and the next time sort of she popped up, is I used her as an example in a paper I wrote about this idea called private solidarity, which is basically like sometimes someone has some hardship and then you take on the hardship voluntarily also. Mm -hmm. And maybe the other person doesn't even know about it. And so I was thinking about these cases, like sometimes it happens, you know, you have to kind of, you know, sometimes if uh, a man's um, wife is pregnant, sometimes he'll be like, okay, I'm not going to drink alcohol or coffee also whatever and if you're like in a consequentialist frame of mind you can be like what's the point of that it's just like one more person who doesn't get the the coffee heat on or the the alcohol heat on uh and i used an example of so when simone was very young she um during the first world war there was rationing for the the french soldiers and she decided that she wouldn't have more sugar than the Mm -hmm. ration for sugar um, which is, it has this kind of feature where it's like, you know, it's not clear that her not having the sugar gives the soldiers any more sugar. It's not clear that like the soldiers ever even find out that this little girl is doing this, but people talk about it as like evidence of like her kind of moral, she as a yeah. moral prodigy or she was, you know, whatever. And I think that's right. There's something really good about that. So I used, I was interested in that kind of example, which, you know, isn't, wasn't about her thought, but was actually just about her life. Um, And then I think a real turning point was there's a part where she discusses um, migraines and I've had migraines from since I was a kid and I never heard any philosopher ever mention migraines, let alone talk about it as like philosophically relevant, that there are things that having a migraine could show you about, you know, the way Simone would put it, like how love in conditions of affliction could work or something mm-hmm. like that. And so the way that um, she was writing about migraines, I was like, that really resonated with me. And having read 
about her life sort of changed how I was able to interact with her philosophical writing. So then at that point, after the sort of migraine thing, I was like, I trusted her in a sense. And then even when she would say sentences that if you just took in isolation, I would be like, that's false or whatever, you know, analytic style. I'd be like, well, you know, I really think that she's on to something. So I'm going to kind of go with it or I'm going to try to, you know, whatever. Um, so I think that trust sort of enabled me to sort of get more out of her philosophical writing than I otherwise would have or something like that. Yeah. And I love what you said about trust, too, because I think that especially when we're dealing with sort of non-canonical people or people who were not recognized as contributing significantly to philosophy and history for various reasons. There are so many reasons why this could happen. I think a big difference between those figures and then figures that we have talked about a lot is not so much that the figures we've talked about a lot are just like that much better or smarter or whatever, but we have more sort of implicit trust in them as philosophers. And of course, so much of the literature on Descartes or Kant or whoever it is, is critical. It's not that we take for granted that they were right about things, but we take for granted that they had something interesting to say and that their work is worth engaging with. And I think that one thing that is challenging, especially for people who are just starting out with an interest in kind of more new narratives, just to put a, just Mm -hmm. for ease of reference um, figures is like, well, you have to trust the figure, but you also have to trust yourself that you are seeing something interesting in what they have to say and that that's worth engaging with. Um, yeah, I mean, there's not really a question there. I just, yeah, it no, but I, like, yeah. I, I mean, it does kind of make me think like, um, I think that's exactly right. Um, you have to engage in a, in a different kind of way. Um, and I guess one thing is like, in all in all of my work, I find that I think a real problem that analytic philosophers have is a lot of them are really afraid of religion. It's like a real taboo where pe- even people who are like very much like style themselves as open and whatever. As soon as you bring up something that feels religious because of this kind of cultural context we're in, they're like, and eh, no, 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 it's just whatever. And I, I've even had moments like that. Um, and, you know, for a long time, I was one of those, you know, long ago when I first got interested in Buddhism, I was like, oh, it's not a religion or whatever. And now I'm like, yeah, it's, well, it's a religion, you know, like, <laughs> so, but it's Sorry like, to inform uh, you. yeah. yeah. And, and it's like, to be like, that's okay. You know, people can say things that way in the same way. It's like a lot of people read, you know, you can read, um, um, you know, Murdoch or or people like that where you're like well you know maybe it's God maybe it's good you know maybe you could just add an extra O or whatever but this idea like and we see this in Descartes too where it's like people read the meditations and they just take you know of course we have to find something that we could slot in that could do the work that God does in that in that context yeah um so I I just think that like being able to 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 not be scared off by those aspects uh helps you to to see those like not just the genre but also like the kind of you know religious things and i sort of set a way in which i read that kind of stuff where it's like 
uh, I think of this experience of like being connected to the world or to another individual as that experience is kind of has this, you want to talk about it in religious terms to highlight how special and important it is. So it's not saying that, of course, that's how that's how the text is meant, but that's a way to receive it. Yeah, I work mostly on early modern and kind of like later medieval texts. And it's really interesting when I talk to people who are not working on things from that context. It's like sometimes they'll be really interested in aspects of what those historical figures have to say, but then inevitably it comes up like, well, how far can we really take this? Because they had this, these religious commitments that we don't have now, or, oh, but they were so interested in religion. Now we know better almost. And I've, I have had people say like, you need to, you need to tone down the extent to which some of these topics you're working with are religious because people are going to sort of balk at that or react to it negatively. And it, it is, I mean, it's just true. I think that in different historical periods, we have different expectations around, around that. And in the early modern period in Europe, certainly like you had to talk about God, even if it was just as a preliminary, because if you didn't talk about God, people would wonder what you thought about God and mm-hmm. not yeah. look at what else you have to say. Right. Um, and now it seems like you have to almost conspicuously avoid talking about God or else people will just write you off. But yeah, one one question that I had about, about Vey um, for you is how do, do you think that her religious commitments relate to, or I mean, I guess it's, it's almost certain that they do relate in some way, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how religion for her relates to um, this stuff about attention or this stuff about um, the mental states that have moral value um, just to kind of get back to how you work, think philosophically with her. Yeah. So I think that, I think they're just intimately related and I'm not, um, I think part of what equips me to be able to deal with that is again, just like you work on Buddhist texts and you're like, people are like, Oh, is this religious or not? And you're like, they don't have the category of religion and they didn't have a, capital E enlightenment where science and religion had a fight and everybody had to pick sides. None of that happened. And so like, it's, you're like, it makes you reflect on, you're like, well, I have these categories and I exist in this culture war situation, but they don't have that. And so they're kind of moving in and out of these categories. And you can kind of see a freedom there where you're like, oh, I see there's a freedom of, if you don't have these categories, then you're not, you're, you're free to like weave in and out in a certain way. So yeah. I, th- I think that's going on. Um, I don't know. Wait, wait what else? <laughs> I, first, I was just sorry, wondering how, how it connected to her work on attention, I guess, specifically, because it sounds oh. like attention was what prompted your colleague yeah. in grad school to first bring Simone mm-hmm. up to you i was gonna say to yeah, your yeah. attention maybe that's a confusing yeah. <laughs> so uh, i guess i mean she defines when she talks about prayer she's like prayer is unmixed attention so she clearly is mm. you know def- at times defining prayer in that way but she also has a great essay called um on the right use of school studies that's like a kind of late essay and there she says interesting stuff that's like it's religious, but it's also like she's like, hey, when you're studying a subject, part of what you're developing is this capacity to really focus and attend on something. And even if you get the wrong answer, 
or you struggle for this geometry problem and you don't get the answer. You still make progress in this other way. And in fact, the object is a, is not important. She says, like, you sh students shouldn't be like, oh, I like this subject. I don't like that subject. She's like, that's not really the point. The point is you develop this faculty that's the same one that gets used in prayer and the same one that gets used in this sort of um, ethical context. And in developing that, you're you're developing a really important ability, not just for like scholarship, but uh, for other things. And I, I just found that also very powerful because like as an academic, especially uh, if, you know, when you're academic in the earlier stages, because things are so competitive and, you know, you have to publish and you have to do things, you can develop. I mean, it's going to sound a little Marxist. But you can be alienated from your own thoughts. Like I've often felt like I'm, 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 I'm treating my own thoughts as a commodity. Like I'll have a thought and I'll be like, oh, but that's not going to be a good paper. And then I push it away. And it's and it's like that's a very perverse attitude to have your own to your own thoughts. But it's like totally understandable because you're like, if I don't publish these papers or whatever, I'm not going to get a job. I'm not going to be able to keep thinking about these things. So to read that essay and be like, actually, this is the, this is what's important. It's actually not this external progress. It's not even the subject matter, but it's like developing this ability to sustain attention and empty yourself of uh, certain, um, certain aspects of your ego or your personality. Um, so uh, you kind of vanishing in that, in that way. And sometimes it's like, she gets a little bit, it's like struggles. She has this example of like, well, you know, when you're doing arithmetic and you screw it up, when you screw it up, that has the kind of fingerprint of your personality. But when you get it right, you kind of disappear, right? You're That's not. It's so interesting. So she has this idea of like this. Actually, who you really are is this kind of impersonal perfection, you know, whatever, which is like it's it's a it's a hard thought to confront because you're like, I like these <laughs> personal thing like sometimes you're like i like this screw up that's that is me right and giving that up means giving up a lot of what i thought of as myself or whatever so a, f a few minutes ago you said that you you know were kind of brought up in analytic philosophy and worked on buddhist philosophy kind of on the side and i'm curious just what that experience was like for you because one thing that we're interested in talking to guests about in these conversations is their personal experience working on sort of non-canonical, again, maybe an imperfect term, but we, we know what it means, philosophers, but also philosophical traditions. And we're focusing on Simone Weil in this conversation, but Buddhist philosophy in the you know Western Anglophone context is certainly also um, an understudied philosophical tradition. So I'm just curious how, how you started working on Buddhist philosophy and then what your experience with that has been, because it sounds like it was something that you've maintained an interest in, but that it wasn't always easy to sort of make central in your philosophical career. I don't know if that's fair to say. Or yeah, not. definitely. So I guess I, I think the, a fundamental irony about me being interested in Simone Weil is like, she's sort of flirting with Catholicism. And it's like, I was raised Catholic and then sort of rejected it. <laughs> um, uh, and sort of, yeah, I think that experience sort of blinded me to a lot of stuff that was valuable there. Uh, and I think that's very common. You know, I once had a colleague who was um, 
uh, Korean and was raised in a strict Confucian household. And when I mentioned people doing Confucian philosophy, he's like, no, that's garbage. There's no philosophy there. You know, but you could see that right. if you had this experience with that tradition that you found it kind of dogmatic and it affected your life in this way, you know, it's going to be hard for you to sort of approach it in that way or you have you need some time. So um, so I basically stopped being Catholic and then it did not occur to me that you could be atheist. So I was like, oh, well, Catholicism isn't the religion for me. So what is? So I, would, you know, I was reading about Islam and whatever. And so then I read about Buddhism and I, you know, I liked it, but it was like, you know, I read uh, that was before I knew that philosophy was a discipline or I had ever really heard of Plato or mm -hmm. Aristotle. So I was reading like Shantideva way before I read Aristotle. Uh, so then when I came to philosophy, I was like, I saw it as a unified thing. And in fact, you can, I had this experience when I was teaching. It was like, when I first started teaching, I had all these classes, you know, two classes at the beginning about how this really is philosophy and whatever. And students were like, yeah, we know. Like, why you <laughs> like, That's, I just realized yeah. that it's like, oh, students come to it with they're like, of course, this is philosophy. You don't they're you don't need to sell them on that, uh, which is kind of where I, I feel was like at. you have to convince them that analytic philosophy is philosophy. <laughs> yeah, more that's than right. You have to convince them. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's definitely right. Um, so, uh, you know, I came to it that way. And then, you know, I after my undergraduate, I lived in Tibet for two years and I studied Tibetan language. Um, and then I decided to go to grad school. And, you know, there were a lot of some. So when I applied to grad school, I had this question of like, should I say in my personal statement that I lived in Tibet for two years and that I'm interested in Tibetan Buddhism? Uh, and, you know, my um, undergrad advisor was Steve Darwall, and he gave me what I think is pretty good advice where he's like, he was very straight up that he was like, you know, some people might not accept you if you say this. Uh, and he was like, but you also should think, would you want to be, would you feel comfortable in a place that wouldn't have accepted you if you had said this? And then I was like, oh yeah, that's, you know. Yeah, very that's, reasonable. That's right. You know, yeah. but, but it's like sometimes you have to play the long game in certain ways. Um, but at least in graduate school, there were certain, like I did a Fulbright in um, Nepal and my department made me fill out all this work to be on leave. So I did all this. And then I go to submit the paperwork and it said reason for leave. And I was like, I'm doing a Fulbright. And the person in the off in the university office was like, wait, you're doing a Fulbright? And they're like, this isn't leave. You're doing research. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> but it was like the rhetoric in the in the department was like, oh, Nick's taking time off. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and then even certain people in the department told me, just straight up told me to declined that so I could stay in America and do real philosophy, right? So wow. there definitely was that kind of thing. And, um, you know, uh, it's, I, I was doing it on my own. I was keeping it separate. Um, and I think things have, are getting better where, you know, now people are like interested or like, you know, coming around to that. And I think part of the problem is like, it's not like, uh-oh, my cat. <laughs> um it's not like um certain kind certain kinds of 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 analytic philosophy can have a very you know you can get good at it really fast mm -hmm. whereas like it's hard to you know it's like it takes i studied i studied tibetan for like over a decade and i still feel like i'm not very good at it it's like it's it takes a lot of time to do the language work to do the cultural work um and I just think that's 
it, it takes time to get scholars who are able to do that, uh, and especially for certain kinds of things. So, for example, um, there's a lot of epistemology in uh, Indian philosophy that looks very similar to analytic philosophy. There's reductios, there's regresses, there's, you know, whatever. Um, so, and a lot of it can be written in a way that's technical. And mm -hmm. in a certain way, it being technical makes it way more approachable because it's, for example, more readable. Like you, you can um, use the same kind of sentence structures. They use a very limited vocab, you know, whatever. So you can get good at it pretty fast. Um, but other things like more literary things, like ethics stuff often is implicit, has a lot of examples. You need to have a lot of cultural knowledge. You need to have a lot of like ability to interpret literature. Reading literature is hard. You know, like you read poetry in Sanskrit and you're like, oh, I have to know like 50 different words for bee and flower and, you know, all this. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that just the general point that we want to, I think as a profession speaking with the professional, we, I don't know, is that a thing? <laughs> but like, you know, we want to encourage people to work on traditions that aren't as established in philosophy, but at the same time, we want the work to be, you know, for lack of a better term, good, by which I mean sensitive to historical differences, sensitive to cultural differences, informed in knowledge about the language that the text was originally composed in. Like that does take a tremendous amount of work and investment. And it's occurring to me that it's like kind of a lot to ask of young philosophers or, you know, early career people to make that investment, not only financially, but of their attention, of their time. Yeah. When the profession itself, like, it's not clear that there's a place for them. Yeah. In it. So, I and, mean, you know, we're, like, we're working on like, that. But like, for example, like I did Buddhism and I got lucky because people are interested in Buddhism. But yeah. it's like, for example, I'm also working on a paper on Jainism, but it's like I could have focused on Jainism. And then people would have been like, maybe it wouldn't have been as rewarded, right? You know, so there's this this kind of thing totally. of like, um, of that's going on. You're exactly right. It takes time. And I think another danger is like, so I think Buddhist philosophy is a good case. Philosophers, I don't want to say it, they ignored it. It's like, it was interesting. I used to work in the philosophy library as an undergrad at University of Michigan. And I remember looking at the dissertations and one interesting mm -hmm. feature of, they have dissertations that go way to the 20s or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that in the 20s, there were a lot of dissertations on Indian philosophy and they sort of disappear. And I was sort of asking around and some people were like, who are kind of historically informed were like, yeah, you know, like there's this linguistic turn and then people start doing philosophy of language and then it's like philosophy of what language English and it starts to be this ordinary language of what's strange to say and, and that kind of stuff. And so that kind of drops away. Um, so there was there there were people and it's like I think someone told me that um, JJ Smart's undergrad thesis was on Indian philosophy. So it's like it was a thing that you could do. Um, but, you know, sort of dropped away and then people who we're working on it. We're working in area studies. They're working in history. And so yeah. a lot of people are trained in that way. And that has its its own kind of difficulty. So like I remember sometimes if I give talks, sometimes historians are like, I don't know what this term means outside of India in this context. And then if I'm like, well, but if the term doesn't mean anything outside of India in this context, I as a philosopher no longer care about that term. Mm -hmm. Like the only reason I'm, in, you know, so I think there's this, there's this 
responsible push to contextualize things in history. But then it's like philosophy in thinking about universal things, in thinking about the human condition. In that project is like a, a push to decontextualize or, or find what's not context dependent. So I think that there's this kind of tug of war and you can get pushed too far in, in one or the other direction. You can be like, oh, we don't need to think about that cultural stuff. We're just thinking about the human condition, right? Well, no, like to actually read the text at all, you need a bunch of cultural background. Exactly. But then you, that's get that's so hard that that project of getting that language and cultural stuff is so hard that you can get lost in that and then forget to do the the sort of um, relevance or, or universal stuff. So I'm going to ask you a related question that's kind of a gimmicky question, but it's something that we ask every guest on the podcast. Um, if you could assign one philosophical text to every undergrad at your university, what would it be and why? Oh, and it could be Vey, wow. it doesn't have to be. It could be Buddhist philosophy, <laughs> it, could be. it could be anything. <laughs> I think that I, I in this moment, I think that I would do um, Vey's on the right uses of school studies because I mm -hmm. think that's practical in a way that's like, hey, when you're studying, here's a way that it's not just um, it's because I think it's like you get instrumentalized in certain ways mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, I'm doing this in order to get grades and I'm getting the grades in order to get into grad school. And then in grad school, I'm going to like I need a publication in order to get interviews and I need interviews in order to get a job. Right. It gets just becomes this instrumental thing don't even bring up tenure <laughs> yeah forget about that's like <laughs> that's too yeah. many dreams away <laughs> yeah uh oh, i and, feel that <laughs> and i think that reconceptualizing study in that way is i think powerful in that it's like yeah it does not like it doesn't have this instrumental value but it it can be this other thing that you do for its own sake and that has these kind of benefits in this other domain i think that's like in many ways the essay is a very extreme essay but i think it mm -hmm. highlights a really important aspect of scholarly activity where that includes like what my undergrads are doing when they're reading interpreting a passage or something like that they're engaged in scholarship of a certain kind yeah so i guess i, I would pick that one and it's short and it's straightforward and it's readable <laughs> a lot of virtues yeah Wow, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be assigning that essay. Um, yeah, I think another thing that like I just feel is so important to, I mean, I, I'm i a PhD candidate at Columbia, so when I work with undergrads, they're usually Columbia or Barnard undergrads. They're super high achieving, you know, very focused on doing well. And I think that it sounds like this essay also sort of, it's kind of comforting in the sense that it's like, well, you know, maybe you're going to make mistakes or you won't quite reach this goal that, that you had in mind, but that has its own kind of value. And it's just another way of thinking about success and achievement that I think is, is like much needed in yeah. higher education. And I think that it, it, I think the mistake, it, the mistake point is, is a good one in that she also says that like, there can be a temptation where when you make a mistake to kind of like, downplay it or kind of mm. move past it or ignore it because there's all these like feelings of like guilt or I'm bad you know I I'm bad at this or whatever and she says no you actually have to like look at it and not only look at it but like try to see its ultimate source and mm. I think that's like often unpleasant but it's like was helpful for me like I had recent experience where it's like um I have a very very close 
friend and writing partner in philosophy, um, who um, is a woman, and we were part of the same um, event. And I had sort of perceived the event as like, oh, it went great or whatever. And then talking to her after, she was like, well, it wasn't great because this happened to me and this happened, this was frustrating, whatever. And I was like, I was like, oh man. Initially I was like, wow, I, that, that aspect of reality was totally Mm -hmm. hidden from me. And, you know, it was tempting to dismiss that and to like, be like, well, you know, whatever. And it's like, you know, an extra layer of irony is like in, in this thing, I was sort of pontificating about moral perception and more whatever and it's like (laughs) the ultimate irony of being like so then you know i just felt like oh i have to really like look at this and actually feelings of guilt and and shame and whatever are preventing me from like examining where this is coming from and diagnosing it so it's like a thing that i kind of got from simone there is like encouragement to be like hey you have to think of mistakes in this other way if you want this kind of advancement and that's part of part of what you learn and you could practice in the context of school studies, right? Where it's not yeah. like, and I think part of the disservice is the way that, you know, everything has become hyper competitive and that sort of mm. trickles down uh, and, and that, that sort of blocks the ability to do this. And even if you're like, if you're like a professor and, you know, you don't grade in that way. People are like, oh, you're a softy or you're nice. Where it's like you, I sometimes worry about that. But then sometimes I, I think like, well, I want to create this situation where students are able to take this attitude towards their mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Which maybe you can't do in a single class, but I try to anyway. <laughs> well, it reminds me of what I feel like has been a little bit of a theme of although I don't know how much of a theme it is in Vey exactly, but this theme of like cultivating an attitude or cultivating a a kind of receptivity, it's like there's no one thing you'll do that will change the way that you feel about your mistakes or that your students feel about their mistakes. (laughs) But the hope is, I guess, that you can cultivate an attitude or, or a stance towards what we're all doing in philosophy that is more flexible and allows for more growth yeah and i think that i'm a, i'm enough of a, a virtuous person where i think it really does help to see to have contact with an actual living person who's embodying that kind of point of view or that outlook mm-hmm. helps me at least to be like oh i can kind of see how that maybe i could try to do that kind of outlook or that's what it would really look like in this yeah. situation or in that situation so i the modeling I do, thing yeah 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 Um, That reminds me. So maybe it would be the answer you already gave, but I just wanted to ask if you had any recommendations for people who want to read Vey but have never read her before, like where would be a good place to start? Um, So I, unless you really like aphoristic stuff, don't start with Gravity and Grace. Just do that. I mean, that is, if you want the kind of thing where you're like, you can read it on a train and you read a little bit and then you sort of look out the window and have many thoughts, that that's gravity and grace. If you want like a regular kind of essay, um, the need for roots is great. Um, mm. She sort of it, it, like talks about certain certain needs that people have, and like has this criticism of rights, and so that's a good place to start. Um, I I mentioned this on the right uses of school studies. That's in um, 
uh, waiting for God. I really like that. Um, so I think those are those are good places to start. Although it's hard to know depending on what you're interested in. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny you say that because I have this really vivid memory of reading Gravity and Grace on a bus. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, this is because I had been trying to read it like in undergrad at home. And then I, I got on this bus and I do like specifically remember being like, this is such a better reading experience. <laughs> yeah. Like and the window. I yeah. would say like, like uh, buy it and then this happened to me, like read it. And if it doesn't do something for you, just put it on the shelf and then try it again. You know, maybe in a couple of years, try it again. It'll be like the right time. <laughs> well, and the nice thing about the aphorisms is you can just kind of open the text and, yeah. you know, do a yeah. little bit of reading and, yeah, it's not as big of a um, time commitment in a way. Yeah. And they are, um, I guess, if you think of them more as like prompts for your own reflection, mm. which is different than reading it as like, what is the claim? What is the support? You know, whatever, where it's like, you know, you have this in certain strands, like in, in I forever was very frustrated with Zen. I just didn't understand Zen texts. I didn't understand what they were doing. And one thing that really helped me was they were like, they're trying to prompt you to have an experience. Mm. That's why they're saying this. So in, I'm not sure that that's the way to read Gravity and Grace, but I I find it more rewarding to read Gravity and Grace with approaching it that way, where it's like, she's trying to get me to have a certain experience. And then when I read these and kind of let my mind be guided by them, I'm, I'm having the kind of experience that she's trying to induce me. Mm. Oh, yeah. Well... Nick, thank you so much. This has been really fun. Yeah, great to talk to you. Good luck with the dissertation and everything. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to New Voices in Philosophy. Production of the podcast is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada as part of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project. This episode was produced by me, Olivia Branscombe. The music you hear is 17th century female composer Elizabeth Claude Jaquette de la Guerre's Sonata No. 2 in D major, performed on the violin by Bizzaria Armanici. For more information about the project and for future episodes, please visit our website, newnarrativesinphilosophy.net. We look forward to discussing all these new figures and ideas with you.